Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm Derek DeVryper here with Michael Beller. It is Friday, July 24th. It is opening day, the full version. We had opening night with two games on Thursday. Felt great to see live baseball again being played in North America. The non-independent ball version. Look, I love independent ball, but Major League Baseball is just its own thing. And frankly, the start of the fantasy baseball season is also its own thing. And Beller, I just think it's amazing that we got here. I'm glad we're at this point. I'm going to celebrate it. I'm going to eat hot dogs and brats and drink beer and enjoy a lot of baseball this weekend. I am right there with you, my man, and like extremely with you because uh, last night in a celebration of full-on um, opening day coming today, Friday, my wife and I went out to the grocery store. We bought some hot dogs and some uh, hot dog buns and mustard and hot peppers and some stuff to make ballpark nachos and some beer and just going to have a little baseball ballpark food smorgasbord at home tonight watching, uh, obviously, Cubs and Brewers and then uh, every other game that I can possibly get my eyeballs on. Yeah, I feel like I need more screens, even though I have just as many screens as I had last season because I want to watch 10 games at once when possible instead of only watching three or four. Uh, but yeah, definitely excited for the start of the Brewers season. We'll talk about a little side bet we're going to have a little later on in the show. Uh, of course, if you're listening to this show, you probably have a subscription to The Athletic, but if you don't, you can get 40% off at theathletic.com slash podcast, which is pretty great because we have awesome national coverage of the league, team-by-team coverage, and our written fantasy coverage as well, which really complements the shows quite nicely, if I do say so myself. Uh, if you watched those games last night, you'd probably come away with the conclusion that Enrique Hernandez is the NL MVP and Giancarlo Stanton <laughs> is the front runner right now for the AL MVP award, which is you know a bit tongue-in-cheek. But uh, I don't think there were any big surprises. The big surprises came earlier in the day. Unfortunately, Clayton Kershaw hurt his back while lifting weights on Tuesday. We found out on Thursday, a few hours before that game got underway, almost, I don't know, maybe like half a day that he was going to miss that start and go on the IL. So Dustin May, who had been optioned to minor league camp just one day prior, ended up taking the ball on opening day for the Dodgers. Very unexpected. Um, a real roller coaster. In a weekly league, you probably had the thought where Dustin May might have been a drop this weekend simply because it's so hard to wait for a player who's not in the big leagues in a lot of formats. And here he is getting the opening day nod instead because Kershaw's got another problem with his back. And I think the nature of the injury is what makes it more concerning for me. You know, I think because we've gone down this road with Kershaw before, I fear the worst. I fear that while they're describing this tightness that it could linger on a bit more than the minimum. I think in the best case scenario, because they made this a retroactive IL move, he could actually come back next weekend. We just have no idea at this point if that's actually going to happen. It kind of seems to me like it's going to be early in the week if he's able to throw on the side. That might start the sequence of events that would actually bring him back that quickly. Yeah, the nature of the injury, his injury history, obviously, are concerning factors. And then there's one more big complicating factor, and that's the fact that the league dropped its expanded playoffs on all of us a couple hours before opening day. So now if you're the Dodgers... Obviously, nothing is guaranteed in any season and certainly not in a 60-game season. But in your heart of hearts, are you really that concerned about being one of the eight best teams in the National League if you're the Dodgers, even if you don't have Clayton Kershaw for the first 40 games of the season? 
I think this is going to make them take it even easier on him because they're going to make the playoffs one way or another, with or without him. They're going to have one of the eight best records in the National League. And so the expanded playoffs makes it even less urgent to get Kershaw back on the field. Yeah, I think it's going to make our decisions as fantasy players even more difficult in some instances, especially on these extremes. You're right, the Dodgers in particular, the way they've handled their roster uh, I got pretty upset about Gavin Lux getting optioned down on Tuesday's episode of Rates and Barrels. I think I'm over it three days later. I think I've finally calmed down and just accepted it. Um, kind of you know, easier to get over it when Kike Hernandez goes four for five and homers getting a start against a righty on opening night. But he's kind of one of those guys that has a, a flair for the dramatic on opening day after hitting a couple home runs on opening day a year ago. The question with Kershaw just becomes, is there any league – and it's going to be without IL spots, of course. He's good enough if you have IL spots, you're putting him on one of those. But if you don't have IL spots and you have a small bench, are you waiting it out at least a little while before even thinking about cutting him loose? It just seems to be like a little premature with the limited information we have now. Like I agree with your point that this could end up taking a lot longer simply because the Dodgers have the luxury of being careful. But if he's able to start throwing in the next couple of days and you drop him this weekend, that's going to feel pretty terrible so what are you doing with Kershaw as far as how you're managing him on your rosters yeah I'm definitely waiting it out even though I am concerned a little bit about the fact that they have the luxury to take it easy on him I'm certainly waiting it out at the very least till the end of this uh you know the early part of uh, of his IL stint I mean at the very least I'm going to give him the minimum 10 days and see if he's able to throw if we get any news from Dave Roberts anything like that and realistically I'm probably pushing beyond it it would have to get to a point where uh, things are looking very ugly for his return things are trending in a direction where he's still not throwing you know one week two weeks from now that's when I would start to consider maybe cutting him loose but uh, I am not making any rash decisions with a guy like Clayton Kershaw and even though I am concerned about the fact that they can take it easy on him even in a scenario where they were to do that and again that's just my speculation uh even where they did end up doing that it's not like they want to bring Clayton Kershaw back on September 14th and be like all right Clayton playoffs are coming go get ready like they're not going to take it that easy on him the only way that he's not coming back until then is if this back injury really is a problem and by then you already know that you're cutting him so I am definitely holding on at least for at the absolute minimum 10 days here yeah, I just think getting more information is important. We're talking about a top 10 pitcher, if he's right, at least on a per-start basis this season. Uh, the other big story from Thursday was the news that Juan Soto had tested positive for COVID-19. That positive test was taken Tuesday, even though the news broke Thursday. The Nationals then had him have a couple of instant tests that came back negative, and I think all of this is interesting because when you see the piece that Ken Rosenthal wrote for The Athletic on Friday morning, Major League Baseball and the Players Association are adjusting their approach to positive tests and how players might be able to come back because we've had a few guys. I think Scott Kingery was the primary example from the article. Uh, Luis Urias for the Brewers has been like this too, where players are still testing positive long after they've become asymptomatic and what is really interesting in this piece is there's a doctor Dr. Zachary Binney who's an epidemiologist at Emory University and he's quoted saying the general consensus even in some healthcare facilities is yes you can test positive for the virus and not be infectious 
there can be either dead virus or just genetic fragments of the virus that are still picked up by a test, but there isn't actually a lot of live virus that you are shedding and is able to infect other people. So I think what the league is trying to do is come up with something that's just more flexible and more logical instead of having the rigid two negative tests back-to-back 24 hours apart as the only way to be cleared. And it still sounds like the league is erring on the side of caution. So Mm. I I think this is going to just add another wrinkle to cases like Soto, where instead of it just being an automatic two weeks away, players might be able to get back on the field a little bit quicker. Uh, I think we did have some instances of false positives with Joey Gallo a few weeks ago, too. So I think that complicates matters as well. So I'm just really curious to see how this plays out because really, as we've said before, no one's gone through anything like this before. You know, the rules are going to have to be modified along the way to ensure safety and to make sure that things are actually being run as smoothly as they can be. And I just came away kind of feeling a little bit optimistic, I guess, that some of the guys that have been out for three and four weeks, uh, Kingery being that, that type of player, they might be a little bit closer to getting cleared to return because it might actually be safer for them to return than we once thought. Yeah, it's such a fine line to walk, such a hard line to walk correctly. And Kingery's quotes right at the top of Rosenthal's piece uh, really get through the frustration that players are going to be feeling as they're waiting for these negative tests. So on the one hand, you want guys who are healthy and not infectious and able to play to be able to get back on the field as soon as possible for myriad reasons. At the same time, for even more obvious reasons, you don't want guys who are infectious being pushed through the system and able to be back on the field at a time where it's not safe for them, for their teammates, for their coaches, for the umpires, for players on the other team, and then who those guys all end up going out and touching. So it's really a hard line to walk, and I guess the league uh, has to and should be erring on the side of caution. It's smart that they are evaluating this, that this is a living process and that it's always going to be a living process through this season because this is uncharted territory for everyone who's dealing with it. So you like to see the league being flexible without forcing the issue, uh, no matter who the name is, right? Everyone, maybe not uh, teams in the NL East, uh, but everyone wants Juan Soto out there. Everyone wants Juan Soto to be playing for competitive integrity reasons, uh, for the fact that he's just a great player, a great player to sell the game. We want Juan Soto out there on the field without question. Uh, So it's good to see MLB re-examining this process while also not sacrificing any sort of health initiatives that they have had and that they should have. Yeah, what was really wild, I was in a draft last night. It started at 10 o'clock Eastern, so all the news for the day, at least as far as Soto and Kershaw were concerned, that had been absorbed and accounted for, and Soto didn't fall as far as I thought. I thought there was a chance he might actually slide into the third round. He went with the 22nd overall pick, so I passed on him in round two. I, prior to the draft, thought about taking him there if things broke the right way. I took Alex Bregman instead. I think Bregman versus Soto, even without the news from Thursday on Soto, was a legitimate fair toss-up anyway, and especially in a situation, you know, this is an online championship league to the NFBC. There's an overall prize component. I didn't want to take on early injury risk, especially. Injuries are going to find my team. They always do. Unfortunately, playing in a pandemic, illness is probably going to find teams and find more players over the course of the season as well. So I just didn't want to subject myself to risk quite that early with a viable alternative right there on the board. But there were some pretty steep discounts on players 
who've been away. I mean, I got Jordan Alvarez in this league in the 12th round, which I thought was a much bigger discount than he was going to go for because when draft season started, I think he was pretty clearly a top 30, top 40 range player coming off the rookie season he put together mm-hmm. a year ago. And that was the point in the draft at which I felt a lot more comfortable taking on some risk. And all of this is going to come down to roster management. I think as we look at injured players, we look at players who are ill, we look at our benches, we look at IL spots or not having IL spots, I think you can afford two injured players if your bench is seven. I think that's about the max. And maybe you can squeeze on one player who's in the minor leagues. If the rest of your team is completely healthy, you can make it work. To do that, you got to have a lot of players who are multi-position eligible because you can move guys around pretty easily at each lineup change opportunity. And that was actually kind of a priority for me. I mean, Bregman plays short and third. Uh, Chris Bryant, who I got in the seventh round, has third base and outfield eligibility. Uh, you look at some other guys that went a little bit later. I think Gene Segura begins shortstop only, but he's going to pick up probably third base based on the way they're aligned in their infield. Maybe he even picks up second base later on. Howie Kendrick as a reserve is first and second base eligible. So I really tried to make a point to get a handful of guys who I'm going to play a lot that can move around because that, to me, enables me to be a little more risky with a couple of players early on. And even still, even knowing that, this works for the beginning of the season. It might not work a week or two from now because of new injuries or new issues that might come up. Man, you have no uh, fear of being hated in this league. You go Bregman in the second, El Tuve in the fourth, and Jordan Alvarez in the, what's that, the 12th round you said? I mean, you're going to get a lot of beanballs thrown your way, DVR, <laughs> in this one. Gotta love that. I, I mean, that's a great spot for Jordan Alvarez, right? I mean, there, uh, there is no risk when you're taking a guy who already has his track record at pick, what's that, like 140 overall or so, where you mm-hmm. grabbed him. I mean, that's not – whatever risk is tied to Jordan Alvarez is completely outweighed at pick 140 by what the payoff could be. I was a little afraid of him coming into the year just because of this knee issue that just won't quit. Um, so that's something I think that has to be in the back of your mind. But obviously, again, where you got him, really no concern there. I love the multi-position eligibility. I think that's something that you want to have at least one or two guys on every single team have the ability to bounce around. And this year, that flexibility is going to be more important than ever. I had a draft of my own on Wednesday and came out of it with Ryan McMahon. And this is a Yahoo League. So in Yahoo Leagues, Ryan McMahon has eligibility at first base, second base, third base. If you're playing with your middle and corner infield, he has that eligibility as well. And that flexibility is great in any year no matter what sort of injuries we're looking at or anything like that. But in this year of years, that is going to be, I think, a huge thing. I think you're going to ultimately see a lot of people who win fantasy championships have multiple guys who are able to play multiple positions. Yeah, I think it's going to be huge because it just means you're maximizing playing time at every single turn. And part of that, too, actually applied to my endgame strategy. While I was drafting, I sent our friend Vlad Sedler a text. I was asking him a question about something I was kind of going back and forth about. And something he mentioned to me, he said, you know, I've been making a point in the end game of my drafts to make sure that my rosters on the pitching side were loaded up with nine guys who were definitely going to pitch in this partial week. And for people who already drafted, they're saying, well, I wish you would have told me that a few days ago because (laughs) that would have helped me more. Freaking Vlad, come on. It's a really smart strategy. (laughs) It it had crossed my mind. I was like, yeah, actually, I need to prioritize that a little bit more. So I definitely dug in on the fly and made sure that basically all I did was I made sure if I had 
drafted starters a little earlier who weren't going to go this weekend if I'd taken a number four or even just someone that because of the schedule was going Monday instead of this weekend, that I had someone either starting or a reliever with good matchups to play this weekend. So the bottom half of my pitching staff, I mean, Josh Lindblom, he goes, I think, Monday in Pittsburgh. Austin Vaught's a two-start guy. We'll talk about him in detail in a few minutes. Uh, Matt Barnes is a reliever with a great matchup this weekend. Even though he's not a closer, he could vulture a win. He's probably going to get strikeouts. There's mm-hmm. less ratio concern given the good matchup, of course, with a reliever. Yeah, one bad inning could be bad, but you can you can take on that risk and, and maybe come away with a pretty nice reward. Uh, Adam Wainwright gets the Pirates this weekend. There was no chance that Adam Wainwright was going to be on my roster <laughs> in a 12-team league as an actual player I wanted, other than the fact that he has a good matchup this weekend. So... He'll be on my roster for his start against the Pirates. He'll be off my roster after Fab runs on Sunday night. Uh, I was looking ahead for two-start pitchers for next week when I took Kyle Gibson, too. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. you'd want to make sure you're setting yourself up because if I don't take Gibson there, if I throw a dart at some other cheap outfielder or somebody who I'm not going to play anyway, I'm probably going to cut that 30th-round pick and spend some Fab to actually get a two-start pitcher. And two-start pitchers cost more in Fab. So that was one of those things that, Beyond this season, I think it has some value. And I think as you're starting to think about your pickups, if you don't have enough starting pitchers making two start weeks or having good matchups, I would not discount using relievers against some of those putrid offenses that are in the league this year. I mean, there's 16 teams that are going to make the playoffs. There are plenty of of talented lineups that will be in the mix. There's probably 25 teams that can make the playoffs this year. Five won't. And the Giants, the Tigers, the Orioles... Mm -hmm. I would say the Pirates are probably on that list, too, because of the quality of the NL Central. The Marlins are probably on that list. The Mariners, and then even the Rockies away from Coors, or at least are a lineup I'm not fearing. So I think you can really wow. you can be kind of aggressive with streaming, and you can also stream relievers in those spots when you can't get starters. Rockies away from Coors. I mean, they still have Arenado, Story, Dahl, Blackman. I mean, I know the bottom half of the lineup isn't going to scare you too much, but that's still... A lot of guys to fight through at the top half. I'm not sure I would go that far, but I agree with the others. I mean, we all saw the Giants and how horrible uh, they looked last night in the offense that they're going to be trotting out there on most games. I want to take Matt Barnes and use him as a focus point for something I've been doing, and I know some of the other guys we're going to get into, so I think it's a good jumping-off point for some of the other pitchers we're going to talk about. Like Closing situations at the beginning of the year are always hard to figure out, hectic, they're messy, they're sloppy, some of them never get figured out, some of them do get figured out, but we're 30 games into the season before they do get figured out, and this year you just don't have time to wait around for that. So uh, uh, Matt Barnes is the sort of reliever who I absolutely love this season because he might not get one save opportunity for Boston. Brandon Workman was great last year. Brandon Workman could hold down the role, own the role, have it all season long. But Matt Barnes strikes dudes out. He strikes dudes out with the very best of them and has for a few years now. And the ratios aren't as great as some of the lockdown relievers that we talk about, the non, uh, the best non-closer relievers, but they're still good enough that they're likely to at least not hurt you. Maybe they contribute, but they're definitely not going to hurt you in your ratio categories. And he is going to strike guys out, no question about it. You know what his role is. And I would much rather have a Matt Barnes on my team than speculate on Ryan Helsley or anyone figuring out that St. Louis job or speculate on who might be the closer for Baltimore, a team that maybe is only going to win 20 games to begin with this season. Like, give me the relievers who strike dudes out, who have good ratios, no matter what their role is, rather than speculating on saves. I have zero interest in speculating on saves this season. Yeah, and I think with 
Brandon Workman being the closer there, he was great last season. He just doesn't have that lengthy track record that makes you feel as though he's totally locked into the job, even if mm-hmm. he has possession of the job to begin the season. So I do look at Barnes as a guy that he's a good staff filler, even if he doesn't close out games, there's still a chance that he ends up getting some saves at some point this season. Even if he's a guy that's on and off the roster too, right. I don't think he's going to cost that much in fab so long as he's not getting those saves. He'll be a cheap near min bid sort of pickup that you can move in and off the on and off the roster when you have the Orioles or uh, maybe going across, maybe when they have you know the Marlins or matchups like that. So definitely some selective opportunities, even in shallow leagues to use them in deeper leagues. I think he is a nice filler, especially for the K's that you mentioned. Uh, so I want to set up some streaming targets and talk about some two-start pitchers for this week, which is sort of a precursor to the conversation we have on Sundays. We have our fab and waiver show every Sunday. And I think this will be a, a good way to start thinking about that process ahead of the weekend. As I mentioned before, here are my streaming targets. I want to stream against the Giants, the Tigers, the Orioles, the Pirates, the Marlins, the Mariners. And here's why I'm on the Rockies away from Coors. It's how the ball moves. It's one of those things that it's not that the lineup isn't good. It's that the ball messes with them. We see it in the splits, right? We see the extremely productive home splits and the dreadful road splits. And to me, it's not because those hitters aren't good. It's because the benefit of being in Coors is the detriment of not being in Coors with respect to movement on pitches. So I do think there's spots where you can pick on them. I don't think they're necessarily in the same group, but I do Mm -hmm. seek them out on the schedule anyway. I'm looking for their home games and looking for their road games. So I just think I I double-check them every week just to see where they're at and who's going against them, even if that threshold of the type of pitcher I would throw against them isn't quite as low as it is for those other teams. They're one of my flags on the schedule, if you will. So looking at the Giants, you know, you look at Joey Lucchese. He's owned, rostered in 60% of leagues on CBS. I, I don't really see anything there that gets me that excited. I mean, if he's available in a 10 or a 12-team league, sure, pick him up, use him. I don't know if he's necessarily a guy who stays on the roster long-term in those formats. I think he's more of a, a matchup-by-matchup sort of guy in most leagues. So nothing unique about Lucchese. Just surprised he's not actually a little higher owned at this point. Uh, but the interesting name on this list, and we'll get to, get to him, I think, on Sunday a little bit too, is Brady Singer. 13% owned in CBS leagues. On the road against the Tigers, that'll be his second big league start. The interesting thing here is that we get a look at him this weekend. He'll make his big league debut before Fab runs. That could shift bidding in either direction. But Singer is actually one of those random Royals who has some prospect appeal. He's not just uh, another guy taking up space, which they have a few of those guys (laughs) in that rotation. He's actually a good pitcher who's kind of interesting. So he's on my radar, just as someone I'm going to watch this weekend. And even if he gets knocked around a little bit, I think you can make a case for him being viable for that road start against the Tigers, at least in 15-team mixed leagues. 
I think you want him to get knocked around because he's a prospect, right? And everyone always is going to be looking at prospects, looking at youngsters, excited about them. If he makes a good first start, especially this weekend uh, with a much tougher opponent, then that price is going to go up. But I don't think it makes him any more or less viable against a bad offense like Detroit, no matter what he does this weekend. So I think if you are if you have an eye on him for next week, you're sort of hoping he gets knocked around over the weekend. Al and I talked about him on an episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15 earlier this week. Uh, the only concerns I have about him are that, uh, right, he hasn't thrown a pitch above double-A in his career. He doesn't have a ton of strikeout upside, at least he hasn't shown it uh, so far in his professional career. You mix those two things together for a guy coming to the majors who doesn't have a whole lot of anything good at his back as far as his teammates go, and you start to chip away at fantasy value in multiple categories. So that's where I am concerned about him, but I think your point is well taken, uh, really how this entire segment has been set up in that there are some truly dreadful offenses that we can attack with a lot of confidence with almost anyone taking the mound, and uh, Detroit certainly fits that bill. So Brady Singer becomes someone who is easy to target unless, of course, he goes out this weekend and has himself a big start because now you're talking about a good start in his Major League debut with the prospect tag attached to him, and then he becomes potentially a little bit too expensive even knowing what he's got immediately on the horizon next week. Yeah, he gets Cleveland for his big league debut, and again, skipping over AAA entirely. That's going to be a tough matchup for him, but we're talking about yes. a guy who was a first-round pick in 2018, uh, and it had a nice workload last year between high A and double A. Made 26 starts, 148 in a third innings, good number of strikeouts, 138 Ks, didn't walk a lot of guys, kept the ball in the park as well. Totally different animal, of course, with the lively big league ball and, of course, against big league What hitters. are you talking about, the lively big league ball? I, they got rid of it. Haven't I mean, you heard? Didn't, didn't you get the memo? Stanton hit a, what, 465-foot <laughs> home run yesterday I off mean, Scherzer? That ball, that ball, I mean, who knows where that ball ended? That ball ended up in Maryland somewhere. I mean, that was ridiculous. One of those homers that makes you laugh when it's uh, made contact with. Yeah, Adam Eaton hit a home run yesterday. <laughs> I think the, the balls might still be a bit juiced <laughs> at this point. Uh, that's that's the early indication, at least based on, on those two, at least. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Brady Singer definitely on the radar for now. If he yeah, if he throws a gem against Cleveland, the bidding could get ridiculous. So we'll talk about yeah. that on Sunday once we kind of hone in on a specific number. Uh, but he jumped off the page as someone who's very available and could be actually very good in that spot against the Tigers. Uh, a few Marlins to look at: Sandy Alcantara, fifty-four percent rostered on CBS. He's the most heavily rostered of the fish that we're going to talk about. Kind of like the Lucchese thing. I think people know what he brings to the table at this point. The stuff is better than the results in terms of strikeouts. If you watch him pitch, mm -hmm. you get really excited about him. If you look at just the results, you kind of wonder what the big deal is. But you could see him taking a big step forward. I think at Baltimore makes it just a little scarier. But the fact of the matter is the Orioles are bad. There are very few hitters in that lineup to fear at this point. Even though it's a hitter-friendly park, I'm comfortable with Sandy Alcantara on the road, I think most people will be, given that roster rate at 54%. I think the other two are pretty interesting, though, too. Eliezer Hernandez, who's only rostered in 4% of CBS leagues, and Pablo Lopez, who's at 15%. They have two steps. They get the Orioles at home, and then they get the Nationals at home. And the Nationals, if they're still without Juan Soto next weekend, that's a lineup that, you know, I think it's a good lineup, but... 
Rendon's already gone. If Soto's gone too, I don't think they're a lineup to fear, even if they're not necessarily a lineup to target. Yeah, they definitely fall in that middle area. Just a neutral matchup, right? Not a good matchup, not a bad matchup, just a matchup. And so I agree with you that those guys are, are guys who are nice to target for those two start uh, outings that they're going to have this coming week. Sandy Alcantara, man. I mean, there's still so much... Uh, promise in him. I mean, it feels like he's been part of our fantasy lives for longer than he actually has. Still just 24 years old. And still, that was just his first full major league season last year. So I still want to buy the stuff because I almost always want to buy the stuff until it proves unviable. And there's a chance that that's going to happen this year. I don't really put too much concern into what he did last season uh, in that first full major league season, a strikeout rate of 18%. Obviously, not at all what we're looking for. But we're talking about a guy on a bad team, his first full major league season. He stayed healthy, made 32 starts, and threw almost 200 innings. Like, I think there's almost as much good as there is bad to take away from what he did last year. What concerns me is when you dig back into his minor league stats and you find nothing impressive in the strikeout numbers at anything above A ball. And that's where I start to wonder, is this something where the whole is always going to be less than the sum of the parts? And I think we have to watch that this year. But with his youth and with his stuff, I'm still likely to give him an opportunity just to see what he can do, especially knowing the soft landing spot that he has to start the week. Yeah, I think the key here with Lopez is a bit similar to Alcantara. If you look at some of the underlying numbers like swinging strike rate, they point to a higher strikeout rate than what we've seen so far, I think the, it's a good point. We didn't see a lot of big strikeout totals above A ball, except for maybe a really limited run at double A in 2018. Lopez is a little bit young for the level, but not way younger than the competition. I think by the time you got to the upper levels of the minors, there was a little more of a gap. 22 years old at double A and triple A. Uh, good results, though. So definitely a guy who's still pretty exciting to me. I think at least in 15-team mixers, I'd use him for the two-start week. But I think I'd push him out there in 12-teamers as well. I, I think that first start against Baltimore is just too good to pass up on. Like I said, yes. with the Nats being down a little bit, I'm okay. Especially with that matchup being in Miami. There's a big mm -hmm. difference in facing the Nationals in D.C. where park factors have become much more hitter-friendly in recent years. Heat and humidity, especially this time of year, really helps the ball carry in that ballpark. But no real concerns with that matchup being at home against the Nats next weekend for Lopez. For Hernandez, I'm not quite as aggressive, but Same. I think he's definitely viable in 15-teamers. He was a guy that I was starting to mess around with on rosters a year ago, so I, I think there, there are a few interesting things about him. His pitch mix is pretty unique, so I don't know how long he's going to be a big league starter, but in these circumstances, I think he is worth going after. Yeah, I agree with you there, uh, definitely. I think that if uh, any of you in daily leagues, I'm a big daily league fan personally, daily transactions, it's it's a much easier choice, right? I think it's easy to, to start him against Baltimore, to pick him up, start him against Baltimore, see what he does, and then play it by ear with that start against Washington. But even if you're in a weekly, again, I just, I mean, that Baltimore team, there are some bats in it, but it's it's not a good offense. It's a bad, bad offense. And I just don't see anyone being a bad play against them. I'm not saying you're going to want to start every single starter against them that you can, but I don't think we're ever going to be sitting here saying, ah, I don't know if they're, he's playing the Orioles. I think you might want to stay away. Like there's no such thing as a bad start against Baltimore this year. Yeah. I think as the issues for Hernandez go, the home run was a big problem for him last year. Over two homers per nine at the big league level. 
He was really good at AAA, a 113 ERA, 102 whip, 69 strikeouts in 48 innings in the PCL, no less. So really nice strikeout rate. Didn't allow a home run there. And they were using the Major League ball and the PCL, of course, at a very hitter-friendly league, as we've mm-hmm. said time and time again. So I don't know if he's going to be an extreme home run guy the way he was upon arrival last year, even though I do think home runs are always going to be part of what you get in that profile. Most projections have him with a high fours ERA, a low one threes whip. It's playable in the right spots, just not a guy you're going to hold onto the roster very long after this two-start week. Uh, Yanni Chirinos could get two starts. He's a bit interesting because he was away from camp for quite a while when the Rays got back at it. If he goes twice, it's home against the Braves, road against the Orioles. I'm just being a little more careful with him because we just don't know what those pitch counts are going to look like. Uh, Kyle Gibson, who I mentioned in passing as a a late pick on the team that I drafted last night, his two-start week is pretty good. Home against Arizona, Texas, you know, the new park, it's not going to be as hitter-friendly as the old one. At least that's the expectation based on everything we know about it. And then he goes on the road for a second start against the Giants. Kyle Gibson's only rostered in 18% of CBS leagues. So he's one of those guys that because he's burned fantasy owners in the past, I think he's under-owned anyway. I like him quite a bit for this two-start week. I do too, and I like that Arizona offense. I mean, pitching in Texas in the new park is going to be a better spot for him than if he were on the road there in Arizona, but I do think that uh, it's a good offense, and having said that, I'm still comfortable uh, going after him and starting him uh, for both of these starts, and this is a guy who I think could stick around on teams. I don't think he's someone who uh, is just going to be someone who you're grabbing because only this is a two-start week. Uh, Maybe it proves to be that way, but there is a little bit of long-term juice here uh, depending on how well he pitches this week. And even if things go sideways for him against Arizona, you have to feel good about him recouping some of that in San Francisco against that offense we all watched last night that is just not going to do very much damage against anyone this season. So uh, Kyle Gibson, honestly, of all the names that we've mentioned thus far, he's probably my favorite guy to go after this weekend. Yeah, I would have him at the top of the list too. Uh, Bid at least for now, at least probably in the five plus percent range of a full budget. So it could be a little higher than that too. The interesting thing that I would point out is as you look at schedules, if you go to the Rotowire projected starters grid, they kind of map out what things are likely to look like. And look, that tool is helpful all the time. You have to acknowledge that it's written in pencil <laughs> this year for all the reasons we've talked about throughout yeah. this draft season. It is, but you can, it is written in clouds, I think, in this season. <laughs> yeah, so you can... <laughs> the cool thing about that is you can at least find out what the matchups are, even if things are always very much subject to change. You can do a 14-day view, and you can see, okay, after the two starts this week, it's another home start uh, in the following weekend against the Angels. Maybe, you know, at home, Kyle Gibson is viable in a 15-teamer. So I think you're right. I think there is a chance that he hangs around on rosters a little bit longer than the Marlins that we talked about, at least longer than Lopez and Hernandez, and certainly probably longer than someone like Singer hangs on mm-hmm. in redraft leagues as well. A couple of Nationals have two start weeks. Austin Voth is the guy that is more widely available. 31% rostered in CBS leagues. Home against the Jays, on the road against the Marlins. Toronto's an offense that I'm not necessarily targeting. I think they're more mid-pack rising up with the young bats they have, though. So for now, I'm not steering away from two-start guys who catch them, especially when they get them at home. 
And then the Marlins, of course, like I mentioned before, they're a pretty easy target. Voth was someone I wanted to pick up last weekend because it looked like he was going to win the fifth starter job. That, of course, became official. So I think that ownership rate is going to shoot up quite a bit. And I think I'd also place him ahead of the Marlins pitchers. I think Voth versus Gibson is a really interesting sort of toss-up because I could see Voth having a case for hanging around on rosters beyond this week as well. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think the reason why I would give the slight edge to Gibson is because I think there's more immediate returns there, and this is going to be a season of immediate returns. And if you told me, if I told me I, I felt basically the same about pitcher A and pitcher B, and pitcher A is facing the Diamondbacks in what we're thinking is maybe going to play as a neutral park and then gets to go to San Francisco, and pitcher B is going to play Toronto in a hitter-friendly park and then go to Miami, I feel a little bit better about those matchups for pitcher A. That's enough for the tiebreaker for me to lean toward Gibson. But I do think that everything you said about Voth is well taken. And, and another important thing about him is that I think he ends up cementing and holding on to that fifth starter spot, too, in Washington. So another guy who we can feel pretty decent about being someone who maybe has a chance to stick around on your roster beyond next week could be someone that you are very happy uh, in September that you grabbed way back in the last week of July. I think the tough decision with Voth is going to be if he does well in the two-start week, the Nationals have two days off the week after that. They're off Monday and they're off Thursday. With that, they could actually skip Voth as their fifth mm -hmm. starter because they could go Scherzer Tuesday, Strasburg Wednesday. Uh, they could run out Patrick Corbin and Anibal Sanchez and then go back to Scherzer mm -hmm. on Scherzer, Sunday yeah. and give Scherzer a two-start week the following week, which means Voth would go an entire week without a start. If that happens, at least in 10 and 12-team leagues, he might have to be dropped. So we have to kind of see what the Nationals are going to do with that schedule. But I definitely like him for this two-start week. Uh, I mentioned Anibal Sanchez there a moment ago. He also gets the two-start week. He's owned in almost 70% of CBS leagues right now, so he's not out there in as many places, but obviously worth adding in those shallow leagues where he might still be out there. How about our, our friend Homer Bailey? Two matchups at home, St. Louis and Cleveland. Those are not lineups you're necessarily picking on, although the Cardinals, again, they're more of like a mid-pack offense. I don't fear them. I don't see a ton of great hitters there. I think losing Marcelo Zuna actually makes them a bit more of a target than they would have been a year ago. Cleveland, not necessarily a team I seek out, but I like that Bailey gets them at home. I think this is a good enough two-start week to use him. And I think he kind of fits into the the Voth-Gibson part of the conversation as opposed to the Marlins part of the conversation. But do you have past scars from Homer Bailey and damage <laughs> he's done to your ERA and whip <laughs> that would keep you from using him in this spot? And there's got to be a Homer Bailey support group out there, doesn't there? I mean, everyone has, has their Homer Bailey story. But uh, this is one where we're going to break a little bit. I am not too into Homer Bailey this week. I agree with you. Cardinals, not really a team uh, that I fear this season. Again, another one of those neutral matchups. Not a good one, not a bad one, just a team to play. Uh, but that Cleveland, that Cleveland matchup does scare me. I think that they're not getting enough credit for how good their offense could be. I think they're getting a little bit overlooked by the fact that they play in a division with the team that – uh, set a major league record for home runs last year and then added Josh Donaldson to that team and uh, an up-and-coming White Sox team that has a ton of big bats that everyone's excited about. And we seem to be forgetting about the fact that the Indians might have the best one-two punch in terms of hitters in that division with Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez. And then right after them, they trot out at you Carlos Santana, Fran Mill Reyes, Domingo Santana, Oscar Mercado in the lineup as well. Like, that is a pretty 
fearsome lineup, especially when you have a handful of those guys that I just mentioned, a handful of the six who are hitting well. Uh, that's not a lineup that I personally feel very comfortable attacking, and I just don't trust Homer Bailey. So this is one that um, I am not necessarily going after with any sort of aggressiveness. I don't think it's one you have to completely shy away from. I'm not saying, you know, red light, red light here, but it's not one that I'm going to be dipping my toes in on. All right, so you're a little lower on Bailey than I am. I do agree with you on Cleveland's offense. I think that first matchup against the Cardinals could be good enough to balance out that second one. And looking a little further down the schedule, the next time Homer Bailey would start will be on the road against the Royals. So there's a nice streaming opportunity after the two-start week as well. So maybe a guy that hangs around for two lineup periods where you pick him up. A few other names to get to, some guys that just have easy matchups. What's your trust level with Josh Lindblom? Returning to the big leagues, it's on the road at Pittsburgh. Only one start this week. He should get two at home the following week against the White Sox and the Reds, which, you know, it's sort of like the Cardinals and Indians combo we just talked about, both being at home, definitely dealing with more of an unknown in Lindblom's case because he's been pitching in the KVO for so long. He's available in 70% of CBS leagues, Beller. I think I definitely want him against Pittsburgh, and I'm at least thinking about it for that two-step the following week. Yeah, I can definitely get on board with this week. I can get on board with anyone against Pittsburgh. If you're looking for starters, I would almost start, as we said at the very beginning of the segment, with looking at who are the team, who are the pitchers who are facing the bottom feeders. Pittsburgh, obviously, is one of them. So I can definitely get on board with this week. I, you're crazy, man. I want no part of that two-start week after that. Are you kidding me? The White Sox in Cincinnati? We could be talking about two of the best offenses in the league, potentially, with against a guy who uh, is totally unproven, has been out of the league for a while. Like, I want no part of that Josh Lindblom to start week. Um, you know, maybe, I mean, yeah, I'll start Jacob DeGrom if he's drawn the White Sox and the the uh, Reds. And yes, I know Jacob DeGrom's not going to I'll start uh, Jack Flaherty. How about that? I'll start Jack Flaherty if he's drawn the White Sox and the Reds. But I want no part of those two teams with a pitcher like Josh Lindblom. No way, man. You're crazy. I'm at least thinking about it for the following <laughs> week, but it doesn't doesn't matter yet. You don't have to make that decision matter, yet. Just not yet at, at Pittsburgh is what we're here for, and he's he's pretty low owned, just thirty percent in CBS leagues. Uh, speaking of crazy though, Tyler Chatwood, home against Pittsburgh, rostered in nine percent of CBS leagues. I thought Tyler Chatwood was going to be good when the Cubs signed him. I thought getting out of Colorado would fix a lot of his problems, and wow, I mean, I. <laughs> I don't even know how it got as bad as it did, but there were strikeouts last year, and he got the ERA under four. The whip was only 133. It was mostly working out of the bullpen. He made five starts last season. But if you told me I'm going to get that baseline ratios-wise and those strikeouts, he's probably someone who you should use in easy matchups, and home against the Pirates is an easy matchup. So... Do you trust Tyler Chatwood? Are you picking him up to stream him at least against Pittsburgh? Uh, I mean, I never am going to say I trust Tyler Chatwood. This is, for me, a team-by-team thing, and it depends on how desperately you feel like you need a start uh, this week. Obviously, we've said enough about Pittsburgh and how this is an offense you want to attack. Even with the strikeouts coming up last year, even with the whip being manageable and the ERA being manageable, we're still talking about an 11.4% walk rate last year. And that's actually lower than his career walk rate, walk rate excuse me, which is at 11.9%. He's been double digits each of the last four years. Obviously, the 19.6% walk rate in 2018 is skewing things a little bit, but I mean... 
the only thing that you can't do against these bad offenses that we're talking about is make trouble for yourself. And Tyler Chatwood is among the foremost leaders in Major League Baseball in making trouble for himself. And so that is what concerns me. So it brings it back to my team. If I feel good about my pitching in general, I'm probably not rolling the dice on Tyler Chatwood. If I feel like I could use an extra start this week, then sure, Pittsburgh. Uh, the Cubs should have a decent enough offense at his back. Uh, Anthony Rizzo returned for their final exhibition game, so no concerns about his availability. Chris Bryant was scratched from that exhibition game, but David Ross is already saying no concerns about his availability. We'll see him on opening day later today if you're listening to this before 610 Central Time, or you already saw him on opening day if you're listening to it any point after that. So no concerns with the offense. I can understand getting on board with that against Pittsburgh. Bad team on bad team considerations with uh, Alex Cobb going up against Miami. But I think Cobb is in the Tyler Chatwood bucket in that I just really don't want to do it. It has to be a pretty deep league. If you can't use him there, you shouldn't be rostering him. I look at Cobb and I see the one good season in the last four. That was back in 2017, a 366 ERA, a 122 whip over 29 starts with the Rays. His baseline's probably closer to what we saw in his first season in Baltimore. 490 ERA, 141 whip, but home against the Marlins. If you're thinking about Chatwood, you're probably thinking about Cobb. Is there a strong lean one way or the other with those two guys who are widely available? My lean would be Chatwood because I just think that he's got a better team behind him. Like the Cubs, I, I, I promise you the Cubs will have better betting odds to be the winner of that game. Uh, than the Orioles will against Baltimore so, or against uh, against Miami. So I think that um, that Chatwood is the way to go if you're looking at those two guys because of that reason and that reason alone, really. Yeah, the other Orioles starters that people might be thinking about because of two start weeks, Asher Wojciechowski and Cole Stewart. Uh, I can't do it beyond AL-only leagues with Wojciechowski. Mm-hmm. You might get strikeouts. I just can't. I think the Rays matchup scares me away enough to not even bother with the Miami matchup. Maybe that's me playing too scared, but hey, you know what? Everyone's got a limit somewhere, and that is my limit. Uh, One interesting thing I saw when I was looking through the roster trends page over at CBS when I was putting the rundown together is that Brandon Kinsler is still only rostered in 30% of CBS leagues. He went pretty late in my 12-team NFBC league. On Thursday night, I think you could do a lot worse looking for a third source of saves. I mean, I, the Marlins, I talked about them as a team you can stream against, but they're not so bad they're not going to win games. They're not quite on the Detroit, Baltimore, San Francisco level. They're more on the Pirates level. It's a bit of a punchless offense right now, but I think they can occasionally, because of pitching, because of defense, be good enough to hang around in a game. And I think Kinsler could be a sneaky, useful pickup in leagues where he's available. Agree with you that he is a better source of saves as your third guy than a lot of other people who are owned more widely than him. I do think we start to get into that discussion I talked about with Matt Barnes earlier with would I rather have a more reliable guy even if he's not going to get save opportunities, a guy who's going to get more strikeouts. I think that there's a little bit of that. He's like right on that edge. But if you need saves, you need saves. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's part of the reason why I prefer saves holds leaks, but that's another discussion. Um, you need saves, you need saves. Brandon Kinsler is definitely um, someone who should be more owned in leagues where uh, people have to be chasing saves no matter what. I mean, he was good last year. 268 ERA, 102 whip for the Cubs, 62 appearances, 48 to 13 strikeout to walk ratio. It's, I think it's just the low K rate that keeps people away for his career. Yeah. 
30-70 ERA, 125 whip. Those ratios aren't going to hurt you that bad over a reliever's workload. You know, I think but he's, he's got to he's got to get the saves. He had like if he's if he's only giving you five saves this year, that's not going to do much in turn with with because he's just not going to strike anyone out. Right. He's not going to be most likely. He's not going to be plus plus in ratios, but anything's possible in a short season. He's definitely not going to be plus plus in strikeouts. That's just mm-hmm. that's not that's not how it happens. He's just not built that way. But if, yes. if they have that series against the Orioles, that alone just for the short term, I think. There's there's a spot right there. Having some matchups against Baltimore, talk about the Marlins finding a way to win 20 games. Well, they're going to win a few against the Orioles. And those games are in Miami, right? I think it's a home-and-home. It's two in Miami and then two in Baltimore back-to-back. I mean, they'll be favored in the two games in Miami, that's for sure. Yeah, I was just surprised that he wasn't rostered in more like 70% of leagues. Saves are going to be gold. It's going to be a total cluster in, uh, in rotisserie leagues this season. Uh, because, look, there's just not going to be a lot of ways to get separation over 60 games. And he's one of the few guys at the bottom of a roster who has the job. So many other guys are speculative or they're part of a committee. It looks like it's really just Kinsler's job to begin the season. So definitely scoop him up if you're in one of those leagues where he's available. Uh, let's talk about some things we're excited to see this weekend with the return of this season. Beller, as people know, you're a Cubs fan. I'm a Brewers fan. We're on opposite side of the opening series. We're on different sides, of course, in the NL Central race. That's just how it goes. Aside from that, and we'll get to a six-pack side bet on that momentarily, what else are you excited to watch this weekend? I am really excited to watch the teams that I've been building up quite a bit over these months that we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for baseball. So I am really excited to watch the White Sox offense in a game that matters. I can't wait to see uh, how those bats click once they're all on the field together playing against a real opponent. I am really excited to watch the Reds offense and to see them trot out Luis Castillo, Sonny Gray, and Trevor Bauer in one series and see how powerful those three guys can be together. I am excited about that Indians offense that I mentioned. Again, I think it's just not getting the credit that it deserves. Um, I I really do think that that can be um, a a dangerous offense, one of the best in the league. I am excited to watch uh, Shohei Otani finally uh, in his fully formed DH and starting pitcher role. I just feel like if Shohei Otani does 2018 pitcher version of himself and 2019 hitter version of himself, how is he not the MVP? Like, I just can't wait to see him as this fully formed guy, totally comfortable with Major League Baseball, totally comfortable with America. Arm is healthy. He's ready to pitch once a week. He knows every Sunday. Then he gets to DH most other games. I am so excited to see what he can do now that he has these few seasons under his belt and the Tommy John behind him. I can't wait. If there's one, the one player I am most excited to watch this season is probably Shohei Otani. Yeah, a healthy Shohei Otani is good for baseball, a lot of fun to watch. That first start comes on Sunday. He's, of course, the Sunday starter for the Angels again this season. In leagues with daily moves, I do have him in one league like that. I'm really excited because you get him on Mm -hmm. the days he hits, you put someone else in on days he gets off, you put him in the rotation for the days that he starts, and it's the best of all worlds. A little extra leg work, but I think it's going to be worth it because we've seen what he can do. Really on both sides already, it's just great to see him back to being a two-way player again. I'm excited to watch the Twins. I love the matchups this weekend. They've got Barrios going, they've got Rich Hill going, and they've got Kenta Maeda going. They kind of become my adopted AL team in recent years, and it 
kind of feels weird to root for a Minnesota team, even on the periphery, <laughs> because I'm really not ever doing that anywhere else. Certainly not rooting for the Vikings. Uh, never rooting for the Gophers in anything. Ever. Ever. <laughs> ever. I just can't. Ever. Can't bring myself to do it. I root for the Gopher and Caddyshack. That's the... Um, that's the one. That's the one gopher I have respect for. Oh man, yeah, just, just I, I can't believe they got the axe from us. Sorry to uh, diverge off into this Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota uh, sidetrack, but thank God we got the axe back. Hey, we've got three to five listeners who are here for the axe talk as well. <laughs> Kluber and Carrasco are two guys I'm looking forward to watching this weekend too. I mean, Kluber with the injuries last year, Carrasco of course uh, dealing with leukemia last season, missing a lot of time. Those guys are healthy now. I think they were underpriced throughout draft season. I want to be right about that. I want to see them healthy and pitching well because I think they're both really fun to watch when they have everything working as well. Uh, let's close it out with our six-pack side bet, which I realize in, in the craft beer world, some beers don't even come in six-packs. So this is really just some beer. It's a beer bet. <laughs> we're going there with the series, bets. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah they're, sure. they're worst bets. So it's the series. <laughs> series winner between the Brewers uh-huh. and the Cubs. I'm annoyed that they're not playing an equal number of games home and away, but without fans, I don't think the home field advantage is quite as great as it ordinarily would be. Maybe just being a little less comfortable on the road in this weird 2020 season, that's where the advantage lies, but happy to go ahead and put up uh, any Wisconsin beer of your choice for this weekend series. My question for you is, what Wisconsin beer do you want in the unlikely event that the Cubs win this opening series? Unlikely event. Unlikely event. Give me. Have you seen all the U Darvish Cy Young hype? Eno. Eno's on the U Darvish Cy Young train. Eno Saris, our own guy. You're rating right, some barrels co-host. He's picking he's picking Darvish to win the Cy Young. Are you kidding me? And he's not I even the day him. once he's not even the opening day starter. I drafted him in yeah. that league last night. He's he's my ace. I had to wait on I waited on pitching and I had to go pretty heavy in the early middle rounds and Darvish is my ace, so I, I need him to be good. There you go. Well he's gonna be really good on Saturday. Uh you're gonna make fun of me, but you know, so so I'm a you know, born and bred Chicagoan. I went to Wisconsin for college, so the state and the city of Madison always have a very warm place in my heart, but that's where I first learned about Nuclearis and learned about Spadica, and we can't get it anywhere. And I know it's like the like lamest layup of a beer to choose, but I still can't get it, and I still love it. It still reminds me of being in Madison and summer days in Madison, so that's what I'm going to go with as you know, chalky of a pick as it is. That's a perfectly fine choice. I actually, on Rates and Barrels yesterday, we were talking about what we were going to drink on opening day. I have one Spotted Cow left in my fridge, and... I'm drinking that on opening day. It's, it's because baseball feels familiar and feels normal. Spotted Cow is just like a way of life in Wisconsin. So I think you've chosen a good beer. Uh, the thing I've always said about New Glarus is they're a world-class brewery. And Spotted Cow is good. I think everything else they make is just as good, if not better. There's some yeah. really cool German-style beers that a lot of places don't even make that they brew. They have some seasonal releases, some sours, and some fruit beers that are really good, too. It's the kind of place that you go and you see something new, you pick it up. You trust them. Like They've earned that over the years. But happy to put up a, a six-pack of, of Spotted Cow. I think from Illinois, I think the the beer I drink the most is probably Antihero from Revolution. It's just kind of mm-hmm. easy to find. I mean, if you're in a 7-Eleven in Midtown Manhattan, you can find that usually as a, a tall boy available, which is pretty great. It's kind of an indication of how far 
beer has come in recent years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hubbard's Cave, I think, is probably my favorite Illinois brewery that I've had in the last year or so. So I'd be looking for just a little bit of Hubbard's Cave. It's probably a four-pack of pint cans or something. So we can, we'll can we even out the, the value of this bet. But uh, whatever fresh IPA <laughs> or double IPA they have available, because they, they, they're one of those breweries, they're always tweaking their recipe and changing up hops a little bit. So whatever the freshest double IPA Hubbard's Cave has, that's what I'll take on my side when the Brewers win two of three. I know Darvish is going to win his start and throw a gem on Saturday. I'm fine with that. It's going to help me in the Roadwire Online Championship. <laughs> Kyle Hendricks is going to get smacked around. Please. Tyler Chatwood is horrible, like we talked about earlier. <laughs> so I think the Brewers get two or three in this series, and I get some Hubbard's Cave in the deal. Like the Cubs are afraid of hard-throwing righties. Give me a break. Woodruff, Corbin Burns. Cubs have never seen a hard-throwing righty in their life. This is going to be this is going to be a sweep. Start the season off right. Start David Ross' tenure off right. Sahadev Sharma and Patrick Mooney, our Cubs beat writers, have a great story out on The Athletic right now about this belief that David Ross is ready for the job, the right man for the job, with quotes from so many people around baseball. He got retweeted by Vernon Wells earlier today. Are you kidding me? Vernon Wells is on the David Ross train? Like, come on, we're going to start the season off right for sure. Enough Cubs propaganda for uh, for one day. We'll save the rest of that for our waiver episode on Sunday. You can find Beller on Twitter at mbeller. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. As I mentioned earlier, if you don't have a subscription to the Athletic yet, get forty percent off at theathletic.com/slash/fantasybaseballpodcast. You can read the aforementioned Cubs propaganda that was retweeted by <laughs> Vernon Wells. You can read national coverage, you can read our fantasy coverage. You can read the ads and drops column that'll go up on Saturday morning as well. Enjoy the rest of opening day and baseball this weekend. For Michael Beller, I'm Derek Van Riper. We're back with you on Sunday. <laughs> Thank you.